Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. On this episode, I'm joined by the amazing, I mean amazing, Dr. Tasha Yurik. Now, Tasha is an organizational psychologist, researcher and New York Times bestselling author. Her life's work is to help people become the best of who they are and what they do. Tasha has been recognized as the world's leading self-awareness coach and communication expert. She is principal of the Uric Group, where she uses science to help executives achieve dramatic personal and organizational change. As a coach, consultant and speaker, Tasha has worked directly with tens of thousands of leaders and spoken live to hundreds of thousands more on every continent. But Antarctica, I think, Tasha. Uh, she <laughs> is the author of Bankable Leadership. And her latest book, Insights, which I did the audio and I absolutely loved, is what we'll chat about today. This book explores the connection between self-awareness and success. And Insight is a Brené Brown leadership business book. And my favourite, Adam Grant, calls it one of the three books he recommends most often. Finally, Tasha's TED Talks have been viewed more than nine million times. She also contributes to Harvard Business Review and her expertise has been featured in everything from the New York Times right through to the BBC. And Tasha is coming to us today live from our hometown of Denver in Colorado. Tasha, welcome to Better at Work. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So happy to have you. Now, we kick off every conversation by asking our guests, where did this all start for you? How did you become so interested in human behavior? What happened in your childhood? Why did you have this passion <laughs> for human behavior? <laughs> That's such, it's a really important question, I think, for us to ask ourselves, right, about, about what we love and, and what we love about it. I think for me, I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. My great grandfather was uh, an immigrant from Germany who scraped together enough money to buy a dairy, well, to get a big loan on a dairy farm. Uh, and entrepreneurism has flourished from there. And, you know, specifically for me, I was so lucky to grow up with uh, a, a mom, a single mom at the time who had started the first school in the country in the U.S. to train and place nannies in the homes of dual earner uh, couples or single parents, um, people that just needed a little bit of extra help. And so I literally got to follow her around at the age of, you know, four, five, six, and watch her be a CEO. So for me, I think there's something, I mean, obviously, like a a real psychologist, not an organizational psychologist could analyze that a lot more than me. <laughs> but it, it just, I think, is my, it, it, what it showed me, this is the, probably the simplest way I can put it, is that people transform business and business can transform people. 
And that's been, you know, kind of in some ways the motto I've, I've lived and worked with for the 20 plus years that I've been in this field. And I just feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. I love that answer. And we actually have a few questions along those lines, you know, that business can transform lives. And because actually the tagline for our show is when work is better, life is better, which I truly believe. And this is why it's true. Yeah. For everyone listening, this is why I've wanted to get Tasha on for so long. She's a busy lady. And I know I've been telling people she's coming. She's coming. She's going to be amazing. And she will be. That was really great. Thank you for sharing that, Tasha. Now, I think a lot of people do not realize that a lack of self awareness could be costing them time, money, and of course, relationships. Um, a lot of relationships break down because of lack of self-awareness. I know from reading your book, we can improve the results by learning to be more self-aware and help those around us. And that's where your great book, Insights, comes in to help us. I think let's kick off there with what is self-awareness? How do you define it? This is a, a simple definition on the other side of complexity. The, the quick background is I've been uh, studying self-awareness scientifically for the last uh, eight plus years. And when we first got our research team together and, you know, we were planning on We've reviewed almost a thousand empirical journal articles that already existed. We collected data from thousands of people all around the world, very global sample. Uh, we did interviews on people that dramatically improved their self-awareness, which was where it really got interesting. But I sort of naively thought like, oh, it should be very easy to define this term. I should have known better, right? It's it's almost like the word communication where we all say self-awareness but everyone has a different definition or or meaning to to what they uh, you know kind of connect that with. Almost a year later, we were able to figure out what empirically is self-awareness and and to distill it down, it's the will and skill to understand who we are and how we're seen by others. And those two components, it turns out, are not only both important, but totally unrelated. So it's you can't assume that you know how other people see you if you know who you are and vice versa. And so what that means practically for all of us, I think, is that the journey will involve both. I love that. I have very some very basic questions to start with. They may sound basic, but they're probably not very basic. No, they're hugely important. I love it. What does good self-awareness feel like? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> good self-awareness feels like ease. It feels like power. It feels like connection. Where in a world that I think we feel so removed from things so often, it's ultimately being involved in what's happening to us in the moment and being able to fully appreciate it, whether, you know, not, not always the deepest meaning behind it, because we'll find out later probably that that is not always helpful, but to just be truly present in our lives, um, present and connected. For any of our listeners that haven't read the book yet, and you have to read this book, it's so great. What does self-awareness do for our lives at work and even in our relationships? What, what do you think good self-awareness does for that? This is the beauty of it, is there is a list, you know, miles long of scientifically supported uh, benefits. So, you know, just to, to give a few of, of the top ones, people who are self-aware are more successful at work. They're more promotable. They're more effective communicators. They are more ethical. 
they're more respected and effective leaders. And there's even some evidence that organizations that are made up of large numbers of self-aware employees are more successful, whatever that means, you know, whatever type of organization you're in. Um, but the, the studies that, it, that have been done shown that it's specifically about profit, right? So if you've got a lot of self-aware employees, you're more profitable. Wow. But at home, the, you know, it's not like the benefits just stay at work. Work and life are really the same thing anyway. Couple of examples. People who are self-aware tend to have more rewarding relationships. You mentioned this earlier. And if anyone has uh, kids, I know um, you have a new addition Mm -hmm. to your family. People who are self-aware raise, ready for this, more mature, less narcissistic children. Mic drop. Mic drop. (laughs) It's funny. My partner and I said we want our little baby Ayla to be, our main thing is that she grows up to be kind. Oh, that's uh, and even when we were interviewing nannies, just as you talked about your mom there with the business, uh, we, we were interviewing nannies. And actually, the interview, I had a question on how can you help us raise a kind baby, kind child? Love that question. So I love that. So self-awareness, just so many benefits for work, life, relationships. Fantastic. I've seen that myself. I didn't have this question, but just as you were talking there, Tasha, about that, I find I'm pretty self-aware, but I can also, sometimes it can be a hindrance at work because you can get Mm. overly concerned about, oh, what are people thinking? Are they all happy in this meeting? And I have a question about those unicorns, but do you feel sometimes some people who are too self-aware can also lead to other challenges potentially? Yeah, that's a, a a question I get a lot. And it's it's an important one because I think in some way, if we misunderstand self-awareness, we can almost get turned off to the benefits to it. So what I would argue is that's actually not self-awareness. What distinguishes self-awareness from more of a, a self-consciousness is self-awareness is her- inherently not evaluative. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is it's not, it doesn't come along with a sense of judgment. It's, right. it's actually quite the opposite. When we are able to see with a sense of curiosity, the good, the bad, and the ugly, kind of who we are in a nutshell, that's when we actually start to be able to really feel compassion towards ourselves. And self-compassion, you know, in our research and others is, is really highly related to self-awareness. So anytime we get into that, you know, I call it rumination, but that more self-conscious side, that's actually leading us away from the path of self-awareness. And it's a good signal to say, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> this is not good. Where did I, how can I retrace my steps quickly <laughs> and, and sort of figure out how I got here <laughs> and, and how I can get back on, on the path of, of self-compassion and self-awareness? That's really great, actually, because it's uh, good that I think we can all get into that rumination piece and, and really good distinction there uh, between the two. Now, right at the start of the book, uh, you hit me straight off with some really great stuff. And I loved your seven pillars of insights. I had the audiobook, and so I got the PDF, which is just the best PDF probably ever with a book. <laughs> it's the best PDF. Thank you. <laughs> For the listeners, why am I so obsessed with this PDF? Well, because the PDF actually talks through the the seven specific categories of self-knowledge that self-aware people need to develop. And they include values, passions, aspirations, fit, you know, the environment that you, you require to be happy, energized, engaged, patterns, reactions, and impact. Now, Honestly, I wish I'd seen this years ago 
Tasha, because it would have helped me so much. So many people come to me and they go, I don't think my values are aligned with the company anymore. Oh, my God, I just have no energy in this job. I'm just so I'm taking it home with me. I'm exhausted. When you actually look at your seven pillars of insight, they are fantastic. The questions and the reflections for people to do are amazing. Sorry, I am on my soapbox here. They're great. Tell us more about why you included or or where did you get the idea to include these fantastic seven pillars of insight? The beauty of this is the idea came from our data. Early on, you know, we had we had sort of defined self-awareness. We had started to understand, you know, how to scientists would call it operationalize it, right? Like, how do we actually measure it? And we spent about four years validating um, a scientific assessment of self-awareness. And part of the way you do that without getting too nerdy, but like nerdy enough, is that you you write a bunch of items. We love nerdiness here. Go for it. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, I had a feeling it was a safe space for me to be nerdy. And you just write items that you think might be related to self-awareness. And then you collect data over and over and over. And you do a, a thing called factor analysis, which basically tells you these are the items that reflect what you're trying to study. And then these are the overall sort of dimensions. And it's actually kind of a funny story because I didn't want them to be seven because that's too many for people to remember. I really wanted them to be five, but unfortunately (laughs) the data did not care. Um, And it's funny, like I'm, I'm actually glad you read them because sometimes if I'm just not totally in the moment, I, I can't remember the seventh one. Like I'll get six and then I can't remember seven. <laughs> Number seven is impact. But, you know, the we, effect we have on others and why <laughs> are those so important? <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it just shows the range of things we need to know to really get the benefits. And I think like practically for people, it's about saying, okay, let me just take a step back and look at all these. What can I recognize I've already done some work on or that I feel a little bit more clarity and and really honestly celebrate that and move towards it and then move to maybe the one or two pillars that, gosh, I've never really thought about that before. Or, you know, um, I thought about it a little, but I think if I, if I gave it a little bit more attention, I'd get a lot more benefit versus I must be clear on all of these by tomorrow morning at this time. Yeah. I just think insights into yourself and what lights you up. And it's just so critical, you know, so many people when they finish a job and they go, I don't know what I want to do next. I have no idea. And they sometimes network with you and they almost put all the effort onto you without doing some of the work. And that's why I think your PDF or your I shouldn't keep calling it the PDF. This is going to it's the book, the book in the book (laughs) insights. These seven are such so great. And the exercise to do for anyone even thinking about why am I down at the moment? Where am I at in my life? It's actually a really great way to just almost like in consulting world, we sometimes do a current state assessment. This is like a bit of Mm -hmm. a great current state assessment of where you're at. That's a great way to look at it. Now, for everyone, Tasha, I love practical tips, but I mean, she has written a book on practical tips. Her book is full of practical tips. Her keynotes, her TED Talks, everything is, I don't know. Actually, I'm going to ask you about that. You are so good with giving people practical tips. It's so easy to digest. Um, this is not a question I was going to ask, but I'm just, I think you do it so well. What's what's your oh, value? You. What's your value that makes you always want to give practical tips? 
Ooh, okay. Wow. I love your questions. They're seriously so great. I think for me, it's about my deepest value is making a positive difference. And having lived in the world and done what I do for a long time, I even have the experience of like, wow, that's that's a great idea, but I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so I think for me, that's just my natural tendency is to be very grounded and very practical, you know, sometimes at my own expense, but yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it's helpful. You know, like if you liked the practical tools in the book, there were actually twice as many because, you know, and then we had to pull back. Mm-hmm. So it's a good example of, you know, our strengths can become our weaknesses. <laughs> oh, but yes. I do think that's just sort of how I'm oriented to the world is in order to be of service. I have to help people put their insights into <laughs> their insights into action. I should trademark that. Or something. You should trademark that. <laughs> no, honestly, it's great. And and this is why I love I've loved your work for so long, because, you know, my North Star is try and help people. You know, the reason I set up this podcast was I would constantly get people ringing me, texting me going, oh, how am I going to come up with a strategy for my team? Oh, I've got a really difficult person on my team. I want to strangle them. Tell me what to do. And it's like, okay, (laughs) do these things. Boom, boom, boom. You like five. You said you had the seven. You want to get to five. I'm obsessed with three. I'm always about three. I'm like, oh, strategy, do a fit, fix, improve, transform, put everything down. That is you need to fix, improve, transform. So you and I are very (laughs) similar geeks. (laughs) (laughs) We like our lists of things. The practical tips in the book are so great. And from my perspective, I feel you stress the need for a flexible mindset, maybe growth mindset, where we're open to multiple truths and perspectives. Now, you talk about it developing a kind of a a learn well mindset, channeling our thinking to focus on learning over performance, which I bloody loved. I mean, there's so many practical tips, but give us some examples of, of, of some of the tips that you say to people to become more self-aware. To become more self-aware. Yeah, I think what you just said, I want to reinforce it because it's really important. If we don't have the right mindset about our self-awareness journey, we're going to sort of put a roadblock in front of ourselves that we can't get through. So it really comes down to a decision. And and by the way, our self-awareness unicorns, uh, pretty much all of them could remember the point in time when they made this decision. And you've got to keep remaking it most days, you know, to be successful. But it's, it's, do I want to live a life of, you know, blissful ignorance where I see, you know, myself with rose colored glasses and just hope everything will be fine? Or am I ready to choose to be braver, but wiser, knowing that you know, this is going to, it's not going to take as much work as people think, but it is going to take commitment, focus, effort, knowing and, and having faith that it will, it will lead me to a better place, that I'll be happier, more successful, more fulfilled, better relationships. To quote my friend, Alan Mulally, who I talk about in the book, he's one of the greatest CEOs, you know, of our time, in my opinion, is knowing is always better than not knowing, period, full stop. Especially if it's feedback from other people, it doesn't mean we need to agree. It doesn't even mean that it's quote unquote true, but it's something that we now know that we didn't know before. And that gives us uh, power, right? So, so I think that's the first thing is, is to really, you know, sit down with yourself and, and have that conversation. You know, maybe you argue both sides of the equation and then you come out hopefully with the, the commitment to this journey. Let me just give you two tips. One is for each 
kind of aspect of self-awareness. The first is internal self-awareness, which is, is seeing ourselves, you know, from the inside out clearly. And this is really simple. It's something that you can do literally when you're brushing your teeth at night or getting ready for bed is to simply ask yourself three questions. And, you know, you don't even have to write down the answer if you don't want to. Number one, what went well today? Number two, what didn't go so well? And number three, how can I be smarter tomorrow? And, and feel free to substitute a different word if, if you'd like, but how can I be something tomorrow? To a person, our self-awareness unicorns reported some kind of exercise like that, where most days they had a habit of kind of reviewing their choices and having a mindset of incremental improvement and and saying, wow, you know, I, I didn't notice this today now that I think about it. How can I use that tomorrow to, to be clearer, stronger, more powerful, et cetera. The second tool is uh, a little a little unnerving the first time people hear it. It definitely was for me. But this is by uh, my friend who's a communications professor, Josh Meisner. And it, it, he's done this with his communication students uh, at university for years and years and years. Essentially, what you do is you think about somebody who somebody who's close to you, who you want to improve your relationship with. And then you have uh, what I've dramatically added to this, the dinner of truth I, with them. That's, that's the I remember that's this in the book. Right? I'm, I'm laughing because I remember this. <laughs> the dinner of truth. I know. Food. The first time you read that, like your stomach drops out of your body. <laughs> it's so common. And by the way, we should talk about why that is because it's really interesting. Uh, it's just a human thing. Uh, so you sit down with them and you ask them, ready? What do I do? that is most annoying to you. And then you listen. Oh my God. And then, this is the hardest part, at the end you say, thank you. Oh. Now, dear listeners, I would never encourage you to do something that I myself hadn't done <laughs> multiple times. I actually chose to do this the first time with my most, uh, intentionally, with my most crotchety friend. And I remember after I asked that question, I almost saw my life flash oh. before my eyes. I just, because because what, what are we afraid of in that moment? I was afraid of my friend Mike telling me, you know, I'm glad you asked. I've always wanted to tell you, I just don't really like you at all. Oh my. And I don't know why I'm friends with you in the first place. <laughs> That's what we fear. Or we fear that they've got answer. more than one. Like, oh, well, I'm glad you asked, Tasha. Let me just get my list here. I've got 12. <laughs> I'm going to need 20 minutes to choose one because I have so many. <laughs> That's true. That's exactly right. It's whatever whatever we fear is, is, you know, so much more dramatic than what actually is about to happen. So for me, what happened in that case was, you know, he said, he thought for a minute, took it very seriously. And he said, well, uh, one thing I'd offer is... I love you in real life, but I hate you on social media. <laughs> so then I said, Mike, that's very interesting. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs> and did you have your eyes closed when you, <laughs> when you said that no, back to him? <laughs> I'm playing it up for dramatic effect because this is a video podcast. <laughs> I, I hope I was a little more convincing. Than you that, were very dramatic. Yes, I think I did, I, did Paltrow, sort of... I think Gwyneth Paltrow should be shaking her boots. There's oh, some oh, really serious acting going on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I was a theater major, so all all the money that was spent on that endeavor is now <laughs> totally worth it. But <laughs> but I, as I tried to figure out what he was 
talking about, it actually was very instructive. And what he was telling me was, you, the, the, the you that I love so much is not the you that I'm seeing when you're showing up on social media. And for me, that wasn't just a personal problem. That was a business problem. That was a brand problem. And I fell into the trap that a lot of us fall into, which is to sort of worship at the cult of self versus to be of service to others. And so I came away from that conversation, you know, sort of with two things that surprised me. One was a really actionable insight that wasn't an indictment of me as a person. And then two, I felt closer to my friend because we had had this like great conversation. I'd been vulnerable with him to ask for help. He had been vulnerable with me, although, you know, he's so crotchety sometimes, who knows? <laughs> but, but still, right? I, I felt like, wow, he's really on my team. He's a partner in my success. He'll tell me the truth when I need to hear it. So I think before anyone who's listening to this knocks this tool, I would encourage you to try it. And maybe you try it with someone really safe first and, and see how it goes. But it can be just a really good, very quick kind of exercise to help with that journey. They were two fantastic tips. So we've got our daily check-in, what went well, what did not go well, how can I be smarter tomorrow? And that dinner party, <laughs> I'm stressed about the dinner party one because I'm <laughs> I have not done that one. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking of Susan. I'm thinking of friends that I could ask, you know, different people. I'm like, oh, no, I got to do this. I got to do this. Love those. Thank you so much. If we turn back to the kind of work environment, 360 degree reviews. Now, you're a huge fan. I actually am a big fan. I worked at Goldman Sachs for a long time. And for 10 years, I had a 360 degree review. And you were reviewed by mm -hmm. everyone, your team, your boss, your peers, the traders, the credit people, everyone. I actually found it fantastic for my development in that I learned so much and it was anonymous, which I know you say the same. It's good to have anonymous mm -hmm. feedback. And honestly, I learned so much. It was like, sometimes he talks too much. Sometimes he, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's true. Um, and data, 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 data. Exactly. <laughs> well, I went to another company then where they didn't have 360 degree review. And actually, I found the leaders there, the divisions or departments they led had the culture of the leader. And so I don't think they were aware that actually, you know what, our division doesn't like your division because you you don't know what we think about you. You're just in your own little bubble. Yeah. Tell us why you are such a fan of a 360 degree review. Well, I think you've you've given it the best ringing endorsement possible <laughs> just now. It's what can you do, you know, you individually, your team, your department to be as successful as you can with as little strife and heartache as you can. You know, you think about like all the turf wars that oh. happen in organizations. Simply just knowing, you, you, again, you don't have to agree if, if it's like finance and accounting, right? And finance thinks the accounting people are, you know, overly process focused or they're, you know, focused on things that don't matter. It doesn't mean they're correct. Mm -hmm. It means it's their perception. And, you know, what I keep coming back to is, the only way that we can make the best decisions is if we have as much data as we can. 
you know, you sort of think about like in a in a, a business context, if 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 somebody's going to buy a company, you don't just buy the company and hope for the best. You, you do your due diligence, and that's where you know I think it can be so helpful for us individually if we have the courage to do it. It is hard, right? And I actually, you know, gone to companies where they didn't have. As I said, these performance reviews, and even trying to encourage people here in Australia, in one company, to go. Let's ask some people for some feedback on you. Oh my God! You, there were tears. They were like, "I don't want to know." And she doesn't like me. She's never liked me. She, she's power crazy. She thinks I'm trying to get in on her turf. I heard it. It was so crazy, Tasha. And I think because I had ten years of that kind of environment. I, I didn't realize that for others, they didn't have that. And it was scary mm-hmm. for them, really scary. And I actually re- loved because you talk about in the book, you know, finding some loving critics. And I actually use some of that with, you know, to kind of get people dip their toe in the water, if you like. OK, well, she yeah. doesn't like you over there in the finance division. Let's try. Let's try Tony. And Tony, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, let's try Tony. Yeah, I like Tony. And Tony could still give some criticism, but it was, it was easier. So that I found, I called it loving critics, toe in the water task. Let's do it. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> I've never thought about it in that context, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's interesting to hear your examples because I think there's always like personal factors, there's cultural factors, but whatever it is that's causing people to be hesitant, you know, try making it, make it easy on yourself. Absolutely. It's not a crime no. to make things easy. It's it's actually a gift to yourself. I agree. And it's funny because once we did a few of the toe in the water loving critics, they liked it. And then they were like, actually, you know, maybe we'll ask now, Louise. Three months before, it was like the sweat was dripping off. I'm not asking Louise. No way. But now (laughs) the toe in the water loving critics had helped us so we could go to let's go to the big dogs now and let's like ask the people we know are going to say something bad. Yeah, because people, you start to see the value. Yes. As soon as you hear it, it's like, oh, you know, even if it's hard to hear, it's now I know. It's interesting because people who are avoiding feedback for their own comfort sometimes underestimate the amount of comfort knowing can give them. That is a mic drop for me because the, the amount of people I've seen who have found out what people love about them, but what they'd like to do differently. They actually go into meetings less nervous. They go, OK, at least I know. You know, I, I remember one lady coming to me. She goes, oh, after I got that feedback now for this meeting, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to start with the things that we're doing wrong because I know that she's going to she doesn't like that. We always start with what they're doing wrong. And it's just simple things like that. I'm a big fan of Caroline Webb as well, you know, and I love her book, How to Have a Good Day. She's just such an amazing lady. And she always, I used to use a lot of her stuff in corporate and go, you know, let's think of Caroline Webb here. She would say, let's do this in a brain friendly way. What I liked about your presentation was this, what would make me like it more? Keep them in discovery mode. So sorry, now I'm getting geeky with brain science here. No, it's fabulous. It's such a great connection. (laughs) We're on our final few questions. Um, These are the questions we ask all of our guests. So first is, we are all about being better at work because, as I said, when work is better, life is better. What's the smallest possible change you think our listeners could do to have an impact and a better day at work tomorrow? Wow. 
smallest change for them for them to have a better, better day. day at work tomorrow. Here's something. Yeah. Offer help to someone. Oh, yes. Help someone else. It's one of the the most consistent findings there is um, just in terms of what we can do to to have a better day and have a better mood is to be of service to others. Love that. Love that. I think you get so much. You get a dopamine hit yourself when you help others. You go back and I actually think you actually get more work done. You you walk back proud out like going, oh, my God, I helped Tasha with that. <laughs> you do. You're like, I made, I made something some... happen. I matter today. Oh, my God. The amount of times I've done that and I got back to my desk, I'm like, oh, my God. Now, where's those emails? Boom. Let's go. You know, just right. like, <laughs> yeah. It gives you a jolt. It does. You're exactly right. That's so it's, true. Uh, honestly, happens to me all the time. OK, now, can you share with our listeners Something you learned or experienced at work that unexpectedly made your whole life better. So something you learned or experienced Mm. at work that has unexpectedly made your whole life better. I would actually go back to the perfectionism thing. I spent the entire decade that was my 20s trying to be perfect at work. And then for reasons somewhat outside of my control, you know, I I was sort of no longer able to be perfect anymore in every situation. I was too busy. I had too many things on my plate. You know, it just wasn't possible. I noticed that at work, my connections were getting stronger. Right. And this this, is sometimes I'm a little slow. So this took me a while to realize. But it became really clear in my speaking work. Please, you're not slow. No, I am many times about myself. <laughs> just, to, just to put that out there, we're all on this journey, right? We're all, we're all on the journey. Even in the examples I gave of, of if something goes wrong in a in a keynote, people like me more. You know, not that I do everything to be liked, but like it's nice to be liked, right? So why don't I just make the back of the store and the front of the store as similar as possible? And and not to say that I'm not trying to work on you know improving myself in general, but. Um, that's just made my life easier. It's I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to obsessively, you know, ruminate over the things that where I fell short. That it just, you know, it, Marshall Goldsmith goes like this. Ah, <sighs> you put your hand above your head, and you kind of you just cleanse the air above you. And I think you know that I'm not perfect by any means, but that's made a a huge difference in my life. I love that. I think you and I are so similar. I've spent most of my twenties the I know, same I we... way. I used to just be like, I've got to be perfect. I've got to get to the next level. I've got to do this. I've got to, and then you know, you take take that into your home life and families and everything are different. So try to be bringing that isn't always great. So letting go of that just does relax everything. So I love that. Now, our final question is, can you recall, Tasha, the best advice you've ever received that's made you personally better at work? The best advice I've ever received to be more effective at work is that people support what they help create. That was given to me by my my after I finished my my PhD program and I went into the the corporate world you know many years ago now by my my first boss in that first job his name was Jim Downey and um, he he was like the opposite of me in every way I was type A he was type B I was about driving he was about you know keeping things copacetic and it, it was just such a well timed piece of advice and I think it you know anytime you want to get something done in an organization you've you've got to do it together you, you can either go fast or you can go far I love that what a great way to finish our our episode here with you Tasha. 
fantastic to have you on. I've loved every minute of this and I want more. Me too. For, for, <laughs> for more information about Tasha, go to TashaUrick.com. There you will find details on her books, keynotes and consulting. Plus you get to, you can watch her reel. It's so good. Your reel on there is so good. I bet you'll all become Thank as you. big a fans of Tasha as I am. And I'm sure you'll become big fans after hearing her on this show. Tasha, thank you so much. I hope we get to talk to you again at some point. Me too. Well, I, I just signed the contract for my third book Yay. yesterday. So uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. I would <laughs> love that. Thank you so much. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Hello, Annette. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. How are you? So good, Kahal. So happy to be here. First of all, Annette, I must say I've got a very bad cold. So I do sound a little weird today. Obviously, the episode we're talking about is with the amazing Tasha. So when I recorded that a little bit before Christmas, I sounded fantastic. But today I sound like Marge Simpson or something. <laughs> I love Marge Simpson. <laughs> anyway, I loved the episode with Tasha, her energy, her honest approach, one of my, I suppose, favorites. They're all favorites, the episodes, but this one was really great because we had so much spark and fun. What were your three takeaways in it? There was a lot of laughing between the two of you. Yes, a lot of laughing. Kahal, three key takeaways for me from your conversation with Tasha. The first one is that unexpected value in moving into the self-awareness mindset and doing all the hard work as Tasha guides is that it flows on into your life. Maybe in some ways not surprising. It's not just for your career success and Tasha's work and research finding around how self-aware people raise more self-aware and let less narcissistic children. So that was, I found that really interesting and for our listeners around looking at this work more broadly than just for work. Yeah, I love that too, Annette. Uh, what was your second one? The second one was the Dinner of Truth tool. I absolutely love that. Oh, sweet mother of God. That one was nerve wracking. So as a way that Tasha guides to build that internal self-awareness, I'm going to try a few of these Dinner of Truths and I'll let you know how I go, Kahal. And I think linked to that is around asking the question. I love the question how Tasha guides us to have the dinner of truth by asking firstly someone you trust, trying it out with someone you trust and asking, what do I do that is most annoying to you? And then just listening and only listening. And then when that person is finished saying thank you. I mean, the dinner of truth, I've never done that. As I said in the episode, I'm excited to do it, but also dreading it at the same Me time. Me too. But it is a really great way to to learn. I mean, I thought the example she shared about how her friend said to her, I love you, Tasha, but I hate you on social media. I mean, you know, her whole brand is about self-awareness. You know, I'm sure she got a complete shock when he said that to her. And I think it's that the guidance from Tasha around how you go into it with the understanding that real value that it's from the people who know you, love you and understand you where you're going to get that richest feedback to build out, continue on that self-awareness journey. 
Funny enough, I, I know you're still doing your number two there, Renette, but had you heard of the word crotchety? I had. Yeah, I've heard of crotchety. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Me too. But a lot of people I don't think are going to know what that word means because Tasha said when you do that dinner of truth, she, she talked with her friend and he's a bit crotchety. And yeah, when I was in the US, that's kind of like a bit cranky. So for anyone that was listening going, what was crotchety? It's a little cranky, a little bit... Uh, Grumpy. Oscar the Grouch. Exactly. And what was your number three in it? Tasha's learn well mindset. Kahal, we know about growth mindset, flexible mindset. I love the learn well mindset concept and how that links to Tasha's work on self-awareness being ongoing. So seeking feedback, experimenting, testing and learning and how to do that with her such a simple tool, asking yourself those three questions at night when you're cleaning your teeth about the day, what went well, what didn't go so well, and then the third one, how can I be smarter, kinder, calmer, braver tomorrow? So having that goal around your self-awareness journey and what you want to work on growing. I love that, the learn well mindset. I have to say, I love that too. Kind of lines up with what we try to say in it with better at work, just try to be better. Yes, tomorrow than you are today. Thank you, Nate. There were some really great takeaways and very similar to what I had. One of the things that really stood out for me was I love some of her quotes where she said, people transform business and business can transform people. I love that. I love that too, Kahal, and it links to the question that we have started in season two to ask all of our guests around what is the thing that you learned at work or changed at work that actually had a big impact on your life more broadly? Exactly. I couldn't believe it. It was so aligned with that new question we've got this season. And the other thing that I think I took from it, Annette, was how her and her research team summed up what is self-awareness. And I kept thinking about it after the recording, you know, the will and skill to understand who we are and how we are seen by others. I think that word will and skill, those words, the will and skill to understand who we are and how we are seen by others. It's a really great way to summarize self-awareness. Also good to appreciate, Kahal, how much work went into that. And Tasha yes. saying you'd think that that would be really easy. Yeah. It was very challenging to get to such a succinct definition. I think overall, I just was so blown away by the importance of self-awareness. I think over the years, I, I definitely in my corporate career learned it is really important to be aware. The science and data that her and her team could put behind it really helped back that up. I'll finish by saying I loved that she summarized that people that are more self-aware, both work and life is better for them. At work, they're more successful, they're more promotable. They're more effective communicators. They're more ethical and they have more profit in some of the organizations where the staff and people are more self-aware. And at home, she said you have more rewarding relationships. And as you mentioned, more mature, less narcissistic children. Kahal, it's a little bit like your conversation with Bill Cowan. The good news is for our listeners that there is a process. There are simple tools. When you think about self-awareness being such 
a huge area and concept, Tasha breaks it down into some process steps, some tools, some guidance to make it accessible. It's not going to overwhelm. I could not agree more in it. And afterwards, when she and I chatted, she liked, we talked about the seven pillars of insights. Um, for any of you that get the book, it's so good. It's essentially the seven pillars of insight, which she has in the book and values, passion, fit, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, she's got a really great way for you to reflect and on those uh, for yourself with great questions. And it's just a great way to measure your own self-awareness because all of us want to be more self-aware because guess what? If we are, we do have happier lives at work and at home because we understand better our values, our passions, what lights us up. I just thought she was great, Annette. I feel like for anyone that listens, I think they'll take a lot from it. And I think I'm very excited for her next book. Are you? looking forward to it. I want to know more about that, Kahal, and so pleased that Tasha sounds really keen to come back and have another conversation with us. Exactly. And Annette, guess what? We better do that uh, dinner of truth. Maybe we should uh, tell the listeners uh, once we've done that over the next few months. Jeez, I'm dreading it. But anyway, let's do it. We'll hold ourselves to account and we, we will do it. And for any of you at home uh, listening or wherever you're listening, try the dinner of truth and uh, maybe let us know what you, how you get on. Thank you, Annette, for those three great takeaways on Tasha. Fantastic as always. Let's go to our listener's question, and it's from Paul in London. And he wrote to me on LinkedIn, actually. Dear Kahal and Annette, I work in the energy sector in a state-owned enterprise. My wife and I have two young children, and while our life in London is good, we've been thinking about a change for a while. I've been offered a role in Australia in a growing company who are very keen to get me on board. Personally, I feel like I want a change from a state-owned organization as there is a ceiling and my wife is very supportive of the move to Australia. However, we are a little anxious to be making this huge change. What would be your advice for us? Thank you, Paul. Annette, what's your first response to that one? How exciting for Paul and his family, Kahal. And I've got a list of six things that I recommend that Paul considers. And Kahal, you know, I have this on speed cut and paste on in my notes on my phone, helping a lot of people make those decisions whether to take a new role. So, And some of these have come I from- know you ain't joking. She ain't joking. <laughs> she definitely has this and she sends it out whenever anyone comes to her. Go ahead, Annette. And some of these have come from Bill Cowan. So thank you, Bill. And I've added a few of my own flavor to it. So the first one is- Paul, does the new role align to your personal values? And there's part of that in doing the work on really understanding what your values are and the values of the new organization role and the leader you'll be working with, the team you'll be working with. So that's the first one. Does the role align with your values? The second one is, does it pay you enough and the emphasis on enough? That links to the follow-on questions and the value question. The third question is, does it suit your family and your lifestyle? Sydney's an amazing place. Kahali will endorse that. Absolutely. The fourth one is, Paul, where does this role lead you and what will you learn? And they're, they're tied up together and it's a little bit of a linkage as well, Kahal, to your upcoming conversation with 
Amy Gallo of being really clear about what you want to achieve in that role and how it fits into your broader plan. The fifth one is, can you be successful in this role? Kahal, there's a big change here for Paul in moving from state-owned enterprise to a commercial organization with the pressures of a board and shareholders. So understanding with the objectives of the role, will there be enough funding, enough resourcing, good support from a leader he can learn from. So that's that's a big consideration. Can you be successful? And then the sixth one is from Cheryl Sandberg in her book, Lean In. And the one of the questions that she was asked and worked on herself when she went in first to Google prior to Facebook, and that is, what is the upside for you in that role and in that organization? Where is that organization heading? Is there a growth trajectory that's going to support you in your career? So those are my six. And Kahal, I know we're sending those through to Paul as well. What this does is move you from out of your thinking and your intuition and some rough pros and cons notes to here's a structured set of six questions, answer them all in writing, get some advice, and that you'll feel more confident in your decision making. Paul, knows at an intuitive level, does he want this job and this move? These questions will take him to a deeper level of understanding about why and also being rational about the decision. And sometimes people have actually changed their mind about they maybe weren't going to take a role and then going through this, they actually say, no, no, I'm going to give this a go. Doing this work can actually uncover that maybe there's some fear or lack of confidence or a few more things they need to validate. So that's my advice to Paul take a structured approach to making this decision and then balance that with what you already know intuitively about what's right for you and your family and your career. I love your framework there in it and, and just so good to be able to assess the opportunity versus those. I have been in touch with Paul and I also took a bit of a broader approach to it as well to look at, well, what's life going to be like in Australia? Like in, you know, in, and actually it's Sydney is the role that he's been offered. I think it's important to also consider what age your kids are at, Annette, because there are certain times I think you can make these moves, maybe, you know, before they start school, maybe be as they get ready for secondary school. His kids are, you know, younger, I think three and I want to say seven. And that, you know, is a big consideration. You know, his wife as well, you know, what's, what's her thoughts? Um, you know, he did say that she's supportive. It's a big adjustment, Annette, to leave behind your friends and family potentially to come to a whole new country and start again. I think it's a really great opportunity to have a change of life, which is just so energizing. It was for me when I came here anyway, I just couldn't believe it. The other thing I think, Annette, is when I look at living in Australia, I kind of look at it across three lenses, lifestyle, career and relationships. Now, lifestyle wise, Australia is a really great place to live. I mean, it depends on what you're, you judge lifestyle, but, you know, great weather, great food, a lovely culture, safe, 
amazing. When I look at career, I think there's a lot of opportunities in Australia, right? To me, I feel it's still the land of opportunity here. There's a lot of things that need experience from other locations on. And I just think career-wise, they give you great opportunities. Well, that's certainly been my experience. I don't know about you and it, but maybe as someone new coming into the location, I found that I've always been given lots of opportunities, even outside of my discipline, which I didn't necessarily see overseas at, at you know, in, in the UK and in New York, but certainly here, if you've got an interest in something. So I think career-wise, lots of opportunity. But the one that I think is a challenge for people coming from that side of the world is relationships. Because if you've got family or parents over there, it is certainly a big, I suppose, emotional thing to leave them behind, right? For them to feel like, oh my God, you know, I'm getting older and you're taking off. And I think one of the things I would say is, you know, you've got to live for the next generation. What's that phrase that we've talked about before in it? You've got to impress the generation coming after you, not the ones that have gone before you. Yeah, it's around that your responsibility is to future generations. And I think like for Paul, he and his wife are going to get a lot of energy and spark and maybe new passion from moving somewhere different. That could be great for the kids. Kids pick that up. While his children are still young, it's almost an experiment or a test if Paul and his his partner, his wife, think about coming out for, you know, two to three years. And during that time, if they plan on making sure that they get home every nine to 12 months, even if it's just for a week, and plan on having family come and visit so that those gaps between seeing each other are, you know, six months, not 12 months. And who knows where it might lead in that some more of Paul and his wife's family might decide to follow them out here and enjoy some time living here that they wouldn't consider if they didn't have an advanced party coming out to explore. And also there's something while uh, the children are little, I've read the research that your children most likely identify in terms of how they see themselves as, as Irish or Australian or American or Japanese, where they spend their high school years is really important. So with the age of uh, Paul's children, the time is right to try this and to make that decision. And then if he does want to you know, return home, then he's still got the school, the high school years to help his children identify. I totally agree in it. I think in summary, what we're saying, Paul, is First of all, congratulations. What an amazing opportunity to get offered a job, a visa to come to Australia, right? I mean, that is an amazing opportunity. I still remember the day that I got the opportunity to come and work at Westpac and I was just so excited that they were sponsoring me and I was getting a visa. It was just amazing. So I say congratulations on that opportunity. And I think what we're both saying here, Paul, is this is a fantastic thing to do potentially for yourself and your family. And what's that phrase? The opportunity of a lifetime is only available for the lifetime of the opportunity. And this is a fantastic opportunity. I think in it, we're both saying go for it. We don't normally get so, so yeah. direct, but <laughs> yeah. I just think he's got nothing to lose. As you know, Kahalai lived and worked in Vietnam for a few years and I've worked in Sydney and Melbourne, Auckland and Wellington. And and I think that the the change, the people you meet, the things you get to do. And if you don't like it, you can always go home. But why not exactly. explore the explore and have an adventure? 
Paul, we hope that helped you. And of course, let us know any other questions on it. And if you've got a question for Annette and I, please do let us know. Send us a message on LinkedIn, Instagram, or through our website, betteratwork.com.au. Thank you so much, Annette, for that. What a great episode this week. I really have enjoyed chatting with you and I really enjoyed chatting with Tasha as well and uh, hopefully get you back again soon. Great to be here, Kahal. Talk to you soon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Annette. And I'm going to try and get my voice sorted for the next recording because, uh, wow, this cold, I sound really bad today. So uh, everyone, I hope you can hear me properly and we'll hopefully sound better when you get back to us soon. Thanks, Annette. Thanks, Carl. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.